0: From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, DC, I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China, and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the US. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is episode 26, Guardrails for Competition. Greetings, happy hump day. This must have been, I forget how many weeks ago, but I was perusing Twitter, or what I suppose is now called X, and I came across a paper that a friend and colleague of mine named Mike Mazza at the American Enterprise Institute just published. And it uh, it's basically this interesting think piece on how the United States should engage in competition with China in a way that is not only effective, but also preserves the best of who we are as the United States. In the first page of Mike's paper, he has this really arresting quote from Dwight D. Eisenhower. And it was from Eisenhower's farewell address. And it's this phrase about security and liberty prospering together. What Mike proceeded to write about is this really interesting question that I I don't know that a lot of us have really dug into a whole lot, which is not only how do we compete to prevail against the Chinese Communist Party, but how does the United States compete in a way that is not only distinct from a nation like the the People's Republic of China, which is decidedly not a democracy. Uh, not only do we, ha- how do we compete with our own unique style, but how does the United States marshal state power in what I would characterize as a new Cold War without sacrificing the best elements that make us who we are? Essentially, how do liberty and security prosper together today in the 21st century? vis-a-vis the Chinese Communist Party. So as I was reflecting on not just my conversation with Mike, but on that question itself, my mind went back to a book that I haven't really looked at or dug into since grad school. And and this is a book by Aaron Friedberg, who I have immense respect for, I think is uh, absolutely brilliant and has done some stellar work on China, but before he published his big book on China in 2012, which was the contest for supremacy, he wrote a different book called In the Shadow of the Garrison State. And the subtitle is America's Anti-Statism and its Cold War Grand Strategy. So the research question that uh, Aaron Friedberg was trying to answer in this book was, how did the United States compete against a totalitarian adversary like the Soviet Union when this anti-statist ethos is intrinsic to the United States. What did it look like for America, which had before World War II enjoyed geographic isolationism? uh, Sure, America was coming onto the world stage at the turn of the century, but the whole concept of a national security state was not something that the United States brought with it into the 20th century at all. We came into that reality coming out of World War II and continuing into the Cold War. So Friedberg's question is, what did that process look like? And essentially, how did America marshal power to compete uh, and ultimately emerge victorious from the Cold War while also Maintaining its unique, I guess you could call it strategic culture, but also in a more direct sense, its commitment to liberty and to freedom. Because there is, I think, as all of us intuitively understand, there's this trade off that every human under the sun in some way will make between liberty and security. And in many cases, other people make that decision for them, right? And the book is fascinating. And It's Sure, it's a little wonky. It's academic. It's meant, uh, I think it's published through, yeah, Princeton University Press, but uh, it it is well-researched. It's well-written. Anyone who reads it will will come away smarter than they were before, but I want to read just one brief excerpt from uh, Aaron's conclusion because it's quite prescient. And, And let's see here. This book was published in 2000. So again, this is, this is Aaron writing in 2000, uh, 23 years ago, before 9-11, quote, It is tempting for Americans to believe that the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War mark the passage of the last serious challenge to liberal democracy as a system, and perhaps even to the United States as the preponderant global power. In the fullness of time, this may turn out to have been the case. But it is also possible that new challengers could arise and that they could take forms quite different from any the world has previously seen." I think that Aaron's word of caution was sound because here we are 23 years later talking about that next big challenge, which is the Chinese Communist Party. So this brings us again to this exact same question, how does the United States create state power uh, to uh, form competitive strategies that are winning ones against this new adversary while at the same time staying true to who we are? I think it's a great question to ask. And when I talked about this with Mike, we start top level and then we get down into three, uh, three or four specific policy areas that are connected to that question. Uh, and I'm really excited to share their conversation with you. But before we do that, I want to flag the title of this whole podcast, which is Guardrails for Competition. We're going to get into this in the podcast with Mike in a moment, but keep in the back of your head how the Biden administration uses that term guardrails. For them, guardrails is meant to, as barriers to keep the bilateral U.S.-China relationship getting out of control basically, to keep things stable on an, uh, on an even footing. The way Mike uses guardrails and, and the way I think is really helpful for us to think about that term is not guardrails bilaterally with our adversary, but guardrails for ourselves. Guardrails and standards for the United States to aspire to and to meet as we get into the season of protracted competition with, uh, with Beijing. What does it mean for the United States to hold its values and to be cunning and strategic at the same time? It's a big question and there are m- many different ways people can take it, but I-, I really liked how Mike took on that question in this white paper. Uh, so I wanted to talk with him about it and I'm excited to share his thoughts and our conversation with you. So thanks for listening and let's get into it. Mike pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. You recently published a white paper through the American Enterprise Institute. We're going to link to it in the show notes. It's called Principles and Policies for Competition. It's short enough that anyone who picks it up could read through it in probably 10 minutes or so, but it's thick enough and substantive enough that there's really a lot of material in there to give a broad overview on not only how to understand why the US and China are locked in this, what seems to be an intractable competition, but you also lay out some policies for what the United States should do to gain the upper hand in that competition. I'm always on the lookout for big think pieces about US-China competition, because I think there's a lot of activity that Washington is very busy doing. And it's always good to step back and reassess our priors and ask, what are we trying to achieve? Why and how and is it working? So I was really excited to see this piece and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. If we could, let's start with one of the words in the title, which is competition. Keeping track on the past, I don't know, five five years or so, four years of US-China policy, when things started to get more competitive in DC, we started with the framework of great power competition in the prior administration. And then now with the Biden administration, I've counted a number of different rhetorical shifts. You've had extreme competition, stiff competition, intense competition, long-term strategic competition. Effective and healthy competition, but now we're they kind of landed on managed competition. So let's start with I want to get your thoughts on how much do these different frameworks and slogans matter. Like what what should we make of that rhetorical shift, and also how do you think the correct way to frame this relationship is?
1: Yeah. So I would say two things. On the one hand the reason that I use the the phrase competition in the title and throughout the paper is, is simply because that's the term that is in common usage at this point. I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's sort of just path of least resistance is to, to go with it. I think there's a lot of silliness in um, attaching all the different adjectives we've seen to that word, because for the most part, I, I think whether it's managed competition or stiff competition, extreme, you know, these things are not clarifying their obscuring and that's part of the reason why i wanted to to write this paper was to to get at that you know sort of very fundamental question of you know what is this what is this all about you know i, I think that the phrase competition is useful in that it it highlights and emphasizes the fact that the, you know the us china relationship has entered a you know, an adversarial period the embrace of the the phrase competition represents a shift away from the emphasis on on engagement. You know, I, I think engagement is not is not over, but it's no longer prioritized and signaling that is important for you know, driving US policy in Washington.
0: It's interesting the description you just used that we're now in a quote-unquote adversarial period with Beijing. I think this leads to a related question which is if the nature of the relationship is increasingly a competitive one what does that mean for how we think of the people's republic of china how do we categorize china in relation to the united states yeah. uh, i i ask because this is another this is another term that is uh, i don't think there's a Universally agreed upon approach for how do we describe the Chinese Communist Party right now? Uh, you you use the term broadly adversarial a number of times in uh, in this paper. I think you're right to say we're in an adversarial period in our relations. Uh, objectively, I think that's true. When we talk about China specifically, what are they to America right now? Is the PRC a competitor, an enemy, an adversary? How much do these words matter? for when we talk about competition and depending on which framework we use what signal are we sending about how we view this relationship
1: well i'm going to avoid attaching a, a specific word for for the moment you know i'd say on the one hand the reason i use this phrase broadly adversarial is because you know as as you know well there is still this you know huge bilateral economic relationship um, you know with both countries benefit from um, in in important ways uh, you know there there may be other some other areas of shared interest whether that be non-proliferation or, or climate change international you know financial stability but all that being said the reason I use the phrase adversarial is because my own view is that China increasingly uh, has put itself in position and actively threatens the ways the United States has gone about ensuring, you know, its very fundamental interests. Th- those fundamental interests, essentially, being you know defending the homeland, protecting the American way of life, including our our democratic institutions, and ensuring the continuing prosperity of the American people. Um, and I think what what we've seen is the reason we have entered this adversarial relationship is not because there's been a fundamental change in the United States, and not because there's been a fundamental change in the Chinese Communist Party, which rules and and leads the People's Republic of China, but because the PRC has arisen to a status in which its power and global influence are, are beginning to rival those of the United States. And so now the CCP is in a position to sort of act on inclinations, which have always been there. I think the CCP genuinely believes it it deserves and is destined to ultimately sit atop you know a global power hierarchy. I, I think it has set its sights on, on doing that locally, regionally first, but but that it does aspire to be a global power like the United States has been over over the last century. And because of that, it is seeking to reshape global order in ways that benefit itself and its own system. It is rationally modernizing its military, but doing so in ways that both threaten the U.S. homeland and, and threaten the, the forward defense perimeter. And, and not only is it continuing to repress people within China, but it is seeking to make the world safer for autocracy everywhere, in my opinion, that you know a world such as that is a world that is less safe for democracies like our own.
0: You mentioned preserving the American way of life and our democratic system of government, both in your response just now and also in your paper. And in a few minutes, I want to come back to that. But for now, this leads me to what I found to be one of the really interesting parts of this paper that you wrote, which is the way you talk about guardrails. Because as the United States and China are in an increasingly competitive situation, competition without some sort of North Star leads you not only to competition that isn't directed, that isn't intentional, uh, but it also endangers things of your own that you also value if you're not careful. And, and I, I really appreciated that point that you made in the way that you framed it. You had, I think, three main guardrails that you brought up in here. The first one being guard the US liberal democratic form of government and the institutions that underpin it protect civil liberties of all people inside of the United States and cooperate with rival powers where interests align, but not to the point that you're making a strategic sacrifice that doesn't make sense. I found this framework not only to be something that resonated with me personally, but I also found it to be really interesting because this is not how the administration in D.C. defines the term guardrails today. When when they talk about guardrails, it's usually making sure that competition doesn't veer into conflict. That's a pretty consistent talking point across Department of State, Department of Defense, uh, and to the National Security Council and and other officials. In principle, I think that makes sense because nobody wants anything to veer into conflict with China. But I, I wanted to ask you, was there a reason that you had in mind when you had this maybe more nuanced approach to guardrails that I'm not seeing a whole lot of other people use when they talk about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I certainly use it in a different way than the Biden administration does. Um, And I think your your framing of of the way the Biden administration talks about guardrails is accurate. I mean, I see a couple, you know, two or three problems with the administration's usage. Um, So one is, they haven't been really more specific than you've been just now, right? We, we don't want to veer into conflict. They haven't explained exactly what, what that means, what, what guardrails might look like. You know, two, China has expressed no interest in, in this framing for whatever reason. And I, I think the reason is that in order to establish firm guardrails, you essentially have to agree to or or state where your red lines lay, right? And if you do that, it, it deprives you, and this goes for the United States as well, it deprives you of, of flexibility. I understand why China is not interested in doing that, and, and frankly, I think we should be careful about, about doing that as well. The way I use it is, is in a very unilateral sense, right? So I, I'm less concerned with creating rules in which both sides, both China and the United States, agree to compete, but essentially setting rules For ourselves, right? Because you can imagine how waging competition could lead to some sort of slippery slope scenarios. And this is something that the United States grappled with very much during the early days of the Cold War. And there is a tension, I think, between protecting the liberties that Americans hold so dear. I think there's a there's a tension, right? A fundamental tension between advancing and protecting the liberties that americans hold dear and and advancing the national security state in ways that defend the fundamental interests that we we talked about up front um there's a tension and there's a tension that when when that comes to things like economic engagement uh, when we talk about things like decoupling um you know i think what we're doing via limiting export of chips and chip design, uh, hardware and software to China all makes sense, but that also is a limitation on the freedom of of Americans to engage in you know in free commerce. There needs to be a, a conscious effort to ensure that we don't go too far down that slope, because if if we do, you you end up sacrificing that second of your you know three fundamental interests that I that I mentioned up front, right? If you are on competing in such a way as to undermine our democratic forms of government, um, our, our our civil and political liberties, then then what it, what you know what's the purpose? The other thing that that I highlight in the guardrail section is is a response to the John Carries of of the Biden administration. Yeah, I have no problem with with cooperating with China on you know climate change, setting aside the debate over what the best way to, you know, to approach climate change is, assuming we have shared interests uh, and can find a way to work together, that's fine. We need to be very careful not to, as I think Secretary Kerry has done in the past, uh, suggested that we would pull back on our commitments to to Taiwan or or human rights or democracy, you know, because China will take advantage of that to advance its own competition with with us. They're willing to make those trades, and we should be very careful in engaging in that
0: diplomacy. This is a great segue into the policy recommendation section of your paper. So you have something like, if I counted right, 14 different areas of policy efforts that flow from this framework that you spend the first half of your paper building out. I'm going to leave it to the listeners of this episode to dive into the entirety of the policy section, I want to start with talking about immigration. When we talk about something as big as, whether you want to call it great power competition or long-term strategic competition or whatever, I mean, this podcast is literally called Great Power Podcast, so let's go with great power competition. Something that big is going to impact more than just foreign policy. I think this is something that leaders in D.C. are still trying to figure out how to do, which is how to communicate to the American people, how not just how big of a deal it is that we're locked in this intractable adversarial relationship with China, but how much of their everyday lives this is going to touch. And immigration is a great example. When I read that part of your paper, it sparked a memory of something that happened. Oh gosh, when was this? This was during the prior administration, it was in 2018, in the Trump administration, there was a scoop that I think the Financial Times got about how there was this effort from folks inside the administration, if I recall, it was Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, maybe a few others, to uh, zero out student visas for Chinese nationals across the board. And the the issue presumably was to address intelligence collections and malign influence activities on American college campuses, which in principle, I'm in favor of addressing. But senior administration officials during the prior administration took that a step further and basically shoehorned China policy into an immigration agenda, which was decidedly anti-immigration. Maybe that's some editorialization on my part. And if it is, and if you disagree, push back. And At the time, it was really concerning to me because you muddle the issue, you muddle the threat, which is not the Chinese people, it's the CCP. And as you mentioned in your paper, we benefit handsomely from immigration. I haven't seen as many people as I think we need to see raising the importance of immigration as a strength for the United States when it comes to China and not as a weakness. So, What's the right way for us to be thinking about something as controversial as immigration policy in the United States right now when it when it comes to
1: China? Yeah. So I'll just step back for a second before diving into the you know the immigration question. Part of what yeah. I wanted to do with this this paper to you know to your point is is make clear that you know wage in this competition is is not purely a defense exercise, which is frankly what we're really good at, right? Um, And it's kind of the default position, I think, for folks both in the administration and on Capitol Hill to sort of think about this challenge, but it's not purely a defense challenge, right? That's only sort of one piece of the puzzle. The, The other thing that I wanted to do is focus very much on making the case that In order to compete effectively, the United States needs to focus first and foremost on strengthening itself. Part of that is investing in in your military, in your force structure, and force posture, and and all that. But it's not it's not that alone. So, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to address, or I decided to address, immigration as part of one of the first um, policy proposals in the paper was in part because of what you just raised. I think you know, elements of the Republican Party in particular have adopted a a far more skeptical stance towards immigration. And we have seen this, this idea continue to percolate on the right that we should keep Chinese students out altogether. Um, And and I think that that, you know, is just fundamentally incorrect. Uh, So to your point, yes, there are are concerns about, you know, sort of non-traditional intelligence collection. Um, I think the United States needs to be very careful as far as the screening it does in allowing in students who have ties to the national security establishment in China and it may it may be the case that we need to define that more broadly than we do for other countries but the fact of the matter is when you look at the data most chinese phd students in the stem world are staying in the united states for a decade or more after they complete their degrees, so you know what are they doing? They are contributing to the U.S. economy. They're innovating here rather than in China, and and you know just as importantly as those sort of economic uh, technology issues is they are contributing to American to civil society. Right? They're they're enriching our our culture by being here by engaging with uh, you know both coworkers and neighbors from a variety of walks of of life. I think that all strengthens our. Cultural our society, and does more good than harm. If we embrace that that approach to again, sort of uh, Chinese high skilled immigration in particular, I think we also have to accept that spies or folks with ties to the PLA they're gonna they're gonna slip through. Um, We're never gonna have a sort of one hundred percent success rate on that, and I think that that is a a cost that is um, you know is is worth the the benefits. I, I think it's a minor downside
0: another issue that is similarly controversial in our politics today at least in washington is trade you you get into the trade issue as well in these recommendations and uh, i'll admit i was really surprised by the polling that you reference in that section mike because the the thrust of what you're saying is trade is not only a net benefit for the American consumer and for the United States, it also enjoys pretty broad political support. In the D.C. bubble, I I think that is underappreciated how trade polls across the United States. I mean, I I looked up this Gallup poll that you footnoted, and just a couple of paragraphs in, it, it says, point blank, Americans today are still more positive toward trade Than they were at any point from 1992 through 2016. If you look at both parties, I mean, both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton opposed the Trans-Pacific Partnership in 2016, and the politics for getting through even like small bilateral trade deals, certainly multilateral ones, are far more complicated than they used to be. I'll be honest with you. When I saw your inclusion on trade at first, I thought, I don't know how likely this is going to be politically, but then I looked at the polling you included and I, I was frankly really surprised. What do you see happening that could maybe open up uh, some willingness to do trade promotion authority again or get back onto uh, into that
1: issue? I'm not hopeful. You know, Jake Sullivan came out and gave this major speech, and I think it was Brookings. That's followed on comments uh, by other economic officials in the Biden administration, and, and essentially they're, they're giving up on the idea of free trade. Right? They keep saying we're we're just not doing that anymore, um, and and it's frankly bewildering. Not only because Americans, as you know, as you point out, are broadly in favor of trade, but there is this extremely strong demand signal from. Allies, partners, and you know, unaligned, essentially unaligned countries across the world, but especially in Asia, for traditional free trade agreements. They want access to our market, they're willing to give us access to their market. I don't quite understand why the dial doesn't seem to be moving. You know, part of this may be that the anti-trade or trade skeptical parts, both in the Republican Party and Democratic Party, are just a lot louder than the silent majority, which, which likes free trade. Um, you know, hopefully those polls remain consistent. Those, those high, you know, you know, the high poll numbers and that, that has a positive impact on the, the upcoming, you know, presidential campaigns. But I, I just, I just don't know. Um, as as you point out, those, those numbers have been high for quite a few years now, and that hasn't affected the way we're approaching the question.
0: Oh man. It's concerning to me because bilateral investment deals with allies and partners i mean that's that's positive it's good but as you say they want market access and market access is one of the biggest things that china brings to the table particularly in its near abroad and it's one of the ccp's Most effective weapons of blunting our influence and complicating the politics of Pacific Island nations, ASEAN members, and many, many others. So,
1: uh, it's it's really frustrating at a policy level. I mean, Um, the other reason it's it's I'm sorry to cut you off. This administration talks all the time about wanting to advance a rules based order, and it's within these agreements that the rules get written. You know, if we're not engaging in the negotiations to advance trade and to again to write the rules that that you know that international trade occurs under somebody else is going to going to write them and they're they're not going to be written in ways that benefit the united states
0: you mentioned the gap between how the administration frames the issue and what the policy is let's talk about human rights which which has a similar issue and, and this is going to sound initially like i'm being disproportionately tough on the Biden administration. There's plenty to say about the former president, President Trump, and how little he cared for this issue as well. So I I do see this as a bipartisan shared reality, which is unfortunate. But uh, it it takes me back to when President Biden said at the beginning of his term that he was going to put human rights at the center of American foreign policy, and I also remember very clearly in December of 2021, when the State Department was lobbying against the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act because they were prioritizing climate change cooperation above preventing imports of goods made by slave labor of Uyghurs. And I also recall the more recent report from Reuters, which talked about the State Department freezing export controls on Huawei, blocking sanctions on officials in Xinjiang related to the genocide there. What I'm not saying is that there are never trade-offs because the, the reality of politics and strategy is that you always are dealing with trade-offs. And uh, it's one thing to Monday morning quarterback from the sidelines. It's another thing to be in that scene making those decisions. So I'm, I, I do not intend to obscure that reality at all. But what I do think is concerning and what I really appreciated you saying in this piece that you wrote, Mike, which is protecting the American way of life means more than just strengthening our institutions at home. It means standing for our principles abroad and where we can advancing our principles globally. You don't need to invade a foreign capital or have like this subscription to neoconservatism to do that. I think that you can have a principled approach to human rights and stand for a stand for something you say you value and you believe in i've been really i guess disillusioned over the past few years both with not with the trump administration but how president trump himself dealt with this issue and how i see the biden administration similarly putting human rights in the second chair do you share discouragement as well? Are, are you optimistic with how we're approaching this human rights issue? What does it look like to stand for the principle of human rights when you're in a broadly adversarial relationship with a rising power?
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, this is, to your point, it's, it's one of the, I think, more difficult sort of portfolios when it comes to U.S. foreign policy because of the trade-offs that are involved and also because of the you know the limited impact we can have, even with a robust approach. You know that being said, here's how I fought the Biden administration. To my mind, you know the United States' uh, long-term goal in in Asia, right, should be a region dominated by liberal democracies, including China. I, I think that China's evolution into a liberal democracy would be Sort of a grand strategic prize in Asia for the United States, but you know more importantly of that, of, of, of great benefit to the 1.4 billion people who, who live under CCP rule. But if that's not your goal, then it makes it much easier to discount, to deprioritize the human rights portfolio and how you engage with China. Now, Again, I, I think our goal should be a you know democratic China one day down the line. I also think we need to be enormously uh, realistic uh, and humble about the American wherewithal to bring that about. Uh, but I do think that in putting pressure on China in various ways, we can help to create a bit more space for people in China who are who are themselves doing the the hardest work of of advancing a vision of a freer China. And if we're not creating that space, then we're not creating opportunities for profound shifts to occur in China that would would benefit the Chinese people and, and that would benefit the United States of America.
0: Mm. So listen, I can't let you go with that without asking a Taiwan question. For those of you listening, many of you probably already follow Mike. He is one of the foremost experts on US Taiwan relations. He's done fantastic work for years on the issue. The Taiwan portfolio has been volatile (laughs) over the past year. Uh, We've seen two speakers of the House meet with President Tsai Ing wen, one in Taiwan, the other on the West Coast in California. How would you assess? How would you grade the way Congress and the executive branch has been managing the Taiwan relationship, specifically the
1: high-level visits yeah. over the past year? How how are we doing here? I'm I'm quite concerned about set, set aside the, the the Biden administration and Congress for the moment. I'm quite concerned about where we stand in cross-strait relations, and because I found the uh, the Chinese response to President Tsai's meeting with Kevin McCarthy in California to be extremely concerning. Now, mm-hmm. on, on the one hand, it was, you know, far less over the top than the response to the Pelosi visit, which went on for weeks, which which arguably that response never quite ended. We never went back to our status quo ante. Um, and, you know, there there were it was both the, um, the heightened pace of Military activities last August, use of economic leverage, you know, the the threatening rhetoric was all very concerning. But the reason the the response to the McCarthy meeting to me was so concerning was was for a couple reasons. one, this this meeting it was essentially a concession, right? President Tsai determined that a response to a McCarthy visit to Taiwan would be even even worse, right than the Pelosi visit last year. Uh, the the Biden administration apparently concurred with that assessment. McCarthy understood those concerns, and they agreed to you know a compromise step. And China responded by announcing a uh, an operation to interdict shipping in the Taiwan Strait in international waters. Now they didn't enforce it, as far as we know. There was no boarding of any ships, but they you know they they pulled this tool out of the toolbox which they know would be extremely provocative if they were to try to actually actually enforce that. And so what we, what we saw was President Tsai and President Biden and Speaker McCarthy all giving a little bit and Xi Jinping essentially responding with the, the hammer again. He can't pocket small victories is the, is the way I, I phrased it in a recent piece. Um, Interesting. And so, you know, I, j- I just find that very concerning as far as the the trajectory that we're on, right? You know, ha- how has the Biden administration handled all this? I mean, I look, I think for the most part, pretty good. I was disappointed to see the initial pushback on Pelosi last year. I was disappointed to see that that, that was not strongly supported from the get-go. I, you know, I thought the Pelosi visit had more than just symbolic importance, as all talks between our two countries do. So, I, you know, I would like to see more high level meetings. Unless I'm mistaken, we haven't seen a cabinet visit to Taiwan over the last year or more. And again, I think these sorts of bilateral talks have symbolic value, which is important, but also can drive policymaking in the way that. Talks between mid-level officials just never will, right? If a commerce secretary comes back from Taiwan and reports on meetings with her counterpart and directs the staff to get busy on a some sort of you know trade agreement, that's going to happen in a way that meetings among lower-ranking officials just just are not. So I think we need to normalize the high-ranking meetings. And that goes for military uh, officials as well, and you know, broadly, I think the Biden administration has done a, a decent job when it comes to Taiwan, but I think this is a shortcoming.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, Mike, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation. I appreciate the thoughtfulness behind this white paper that you published. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, grateful for the work you do and also grateful for your the time you shared today. Thanks for coming on.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for all the kind words. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.